Hi, this is Mike Lacona. I've had the privilege of being on the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters several times over the past few years. Nick is one of the finest interviewers on the internet today. He's well-read and asks the type of questions that bring valuable insights for his listeners. So if you want to get great information from top-notch scholars in a concise package, the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters is where you need to be. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're going to be talking about both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and looking at a concept in the Bible that many of us might not have heard of, but my guess thinks can provide a solid rebuttal to some of the claims of these groups. And that's the idea of the Divine Council. What is that? What role does it play? To discuss that, I brought on a guest that some people have come to me and said, Hey, Nick, when are you going to get this guy on your show? And, you know, people say, well, yeah, maybe I should look into this. And that's uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. He's the, uh, got an MA in Ancient History from the University of Pennsylvania and an MA PhD in Hebrew, Bible, and Semitic Languages from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. <laughs> He taught the college level for 12 years before accepting a position at Logos Bible Software with a focus on producing ancient text databases and other digital resources for study of the ancient world and biblical studies. He is now a scholar in residence at Logos Bible Software, Faith Life Corp., and is a regular contributor to Faith Life's Bible Study Magazine. He has also published widely in scholarly journals and is a best-selling author. His books include The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible, Lexham 2015, Supernatural, What the Bible Teaches About the Unseen World and Why It Matters, Lexham 2015, Reversing Herman, Enoch, The Watchers, and The Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ, Defender 2017, Angels, What the Bible Really Says About the Heavenly House, Lexham 2018, and the 60 Second Scholar Series, Brief Insights on Mastering Bible Study, Zondervan 2018. Brief Insights on Mastering the Bible, Zondervan 2018, and Brief Insights on Mastering Bible Doctrine, Zondervan 2018. He advocates that interpreting the Bible in context means reading it in light of the context that produced it, instead of Christian traditional modern thinking. Readers discover a radical new relevance and coherence when they read the Bible through the eyes of its writer. Years ago, his passion for convincing readers of the importance of an ancient worldview prompted Dr. Heisel to create the Naked Bible Blog and the popular Naked Bible Podcast. Dr. Heiser's nonprofit ministry, MIQLAT.org, provides translations of his work free of charge in over a dozen languages and has partnered with AllAboutGod.com to create a new YouTube channel, Fringe Pop 3 to 1, 
which seeks to engage people attracted to the New Age in popular men's beliefs. Van Dr. Heiser has also written two science fiction novels, Plus Facade and Reportance, and hosts a podcast dedicated to discussing peer-reviewed research on these subjects. Paranormal. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Heiser, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll try not to, to supplement, you know, that, that introduction too much, but I became a believer when I was a teenager. Uh, I didn't have any, you know, religious background, spiritual background. Um, I'm getting an echo here in case you need to know that. But, uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I've always been interested in anything old, you know, and weird, strange. Uh, even before I was a believer, and then when I became a Christian and really got into Scripture, it was like, well, there's lots of old, weird stuff in here. <laughs> so it it really, I, I got drawn in pretty quickly, you know, to Scripture and just really fell in love with with biblical theology. And I was I was good at school. I was good at uh, languages, and you know, I just sort of pursued you know my interest. I mean, I look back on it now, and I can see the 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 unseen hand of providence in all sorts of places. Uh, but I, I eventually wound up going into Old Testament and Semitics because I believed that was where the most most of the problems, the, the most significant problems and really the most problems uh, there were when it came to understanding Scripture and dealing with you know, what we academics would call the phenomena of the text, what's actually in the text. Uh, so that was why I settled on Old Testament. Uh, I knew I'd have to take lots of dead languages, but that was kind of thrilling. <laughs> it was a good thought. Uh, and here we are. You know, I've always tried to to use you know languages and archaeology and epigraphy and all all the stuff you have to go through in, in graduate school and in this field as a means to an end. You know, to mm-hmm. to really helping people understand and read scripture how the original writers and readers would have understood it. And I think that really strengthens, you know, our, our theology rather than, you know, nitpicks it. Now, you gotta works like the Naked Bible podcast and such, and that's got to be a catchy name to a lot of people. <laughs> and what, what is behind that name? I mean, as soon as I hear, I have to think, what is going on there? Yeah, yeah, Na- Naked Bible, we, we, I gave it that name because... I wanted to try to come up with something that conveyed the idea of we're going to try to discuss Scripture alone here, Scripture on its own terms. So we're removing the filters of, you know, creeds and denominational distinctives. And, you know, those things aren't evil and sinister. Um, they're, they, they have a certain utility. But they, you know, for many Christians, they become the way we, they, that they parse what they read in the Bible. They almost take on this, this uh, air of having some sort of equivalence to the Bible. So if someone in another denomination, another tradition disagrees, uh, you know, there, there's, there's tension over that, not because of, of people struggling with the text, but because of people filtering the text through those, those sorts of things, creeds and denominational distinctives. So I wanted to dispense with all of that and just try to do the Bible on its own terms, read it in its own context. I like to say I wanted the Israelite in, in the, the listeners and the reader's head. 
I wanted the first century Jew living there rent free, mm-hmm. uh, so that that they could read scripture and you know, take what they were reading and think like an ancient person would think about that content and dispensing with everything else. So Naked Bible turned out to be sort of a little pithy way of, of trying to express that. Yeah, I have to tell people before, for instance, when you're reading the Old Testament, for the time being, I'd like you to stop being a Christian. Wow. <laughs> Try to imagine... Like, if you're reading Genesis, imagine you are living in the time of Moses, and you only know what would have been known then. How would you understand that text? I mean, you don't go through and look for Jesus immediately. The text has a meaning first on its own. Then later you can read it as a Christian, say, now how can I see Jesus in this? But first, understand the text just as it would have been understood in the first place. Yeah, I've written a few things like for the magazine at, at work, Bible Study Magazine, and and the the blog at work, that really honestly offended a number of people. I wrote a, a piece essentially about the that the idea that oh the whole Bible's about Jesus. I basically said that's a myth, you know. And I gave some some pretty um, how can I say this scatological examples, you know, like. You know what what we're doing with human human excrement in the in the Torah and you know menstrual cycles and you know this isn't about Jesus okay they're they're doing something here for specific reasons and it, it it's designed to to teach the Israelites something about life and death mm-hmm. life force death force the author of life you know who is God and sacred space mm-hmm. you know and, and you know the Old Testament is just filled with that kind of stuff that. It, it, it has become a point of laziness in the Christian community to just default to Jesus in some way. And then, then their imagination becomes their hermeneutical guide. You know, I got to see Jesus in here somewhere. How can I abstract this and sort of make something up that ties into Jesus? And, oh, I got that Old Testament passage now. I studied it. No, actually, you made stuff up and you were lazy, mm-hmm. you know, using using a, a, a trip to Jesus, you know, to justify not trying to understand that passage on its own terms in its own context mm-hmm. so yeah. I, I get to irritate people like that too. <laughs> so, it's always you know, fun to irritate people yeah well it, t- typically you know I, I i don't ever i try to never do it unless it's the ancient astronaut crowd i, I i'll confess i do like to needle them just to needle them but uh, I, I try to to not do that in a destructive way. You know, I want to I want to get people, you know, jolt people into realizing that you know there's really something to think about here. You know, and uh, maybe we ought to put some time into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I can't but think of the old joke about the boy in a Sunday school class, and the teacher asked him the students, "What's small has a big bushy tail, lives in a tree, and eats nuts." And the little boy who says, well, it sounds to me like a scorer, but I know the answer has to be Jesus. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> every question in Sunday school is about Jesus, yeah. Mm-hmm. There we go. Now, I also, my, my ears perked up a little bit when I heard you use the term sacred space as well. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, John Barton on here a few times. I know he's certainly coined that phrase very well. Yeah, it's an important idea, you know, that, 
there there are there are places there are spaces that are not like all the others you know mm-hmm. and teaches again an israelite thought and, and not just israelite thought it's a it's a common you know ancient religion ancient near eastern thought that uh, certain spots are dedicated to divine encounter or specific deity or whatever and and you were supposed to just you were supposed to observe a difference there. There were things you could do somewhere else that you can't do here and vice versa. And, you know, th- those, that sort of thinking is designed to make us, you know, t- take us into the divine world in some sense, you know, to get us to think about God and God's different, how he is other. Uh, I think a lot of modern churches have completely lost this idea. You know, some, some churches that really, you know, emphasize liturgy, uh, still have, uh, you know, a, a, an aura in, in certain respects. Mm-hmm. I mean, they try to preserve a little bit of the concept of sacred space, but your typical evangelical church, you know, that, that doesn't think about that at all has sort of just lost the concept and erased it uh, for people who are who are attending there. Yeah, I mean, you talk about things that you can do in some spaces you can't do in others. It, I kind of about how, Think about that time in me, evangelical churches, that many of us think is hell, and that's the meet and greet time, which <laughs> I absolutely hate. But yeah, I'm in time. favor of banning that, so yeah. <laughs> every time, do an online poll, that would be fun. <laughs> yeah, every time I, I still turn my wife over and make sure to give her a kiss and such, because, you know, Bible says, greet my love of a holy kiss, and so yeah. we're in church, yeah, we've done this in church before, before a whole lot of people, remember? Well, that, that, that's a lot better than, than giving each other high fives, you know, mm-hmm. during the meet and greet time. You know, I've, uh, I could just go on and on about how much I just dislike that. <laughs> we could fill some air time with that. Yeah, yeah. What we need to go on and on about, though, is the divine counselor. Now, it, somebody could be opening up their Bible and going back to a glossary or something and saying, Divine Counsel, Divine Counsel. I, I don't see this term anywhere in here. What is this Divine Counsel? Yeah, it, 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 the term, I mean, you get terms for counsel and assembly uh, in heaven. You know, the context is in heaven in, in a number of passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 82 is probably the best example. Mm-hmm. You know, where the ESV says God has taken his place in the divine council. In Hebrew, it's Elo, Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. The word Adat is assembly, you know, the divine assembly. And then in the midst of the gods, uh, he holds judgment. Uh, Psalm 89 will use the word uh, Kahal, which is a congregation or assembly, you know, or Sod in Hebrew, which again is a council, you know, for what's going on in heaven between God and the heavenly host. So it's a biblical idea. Uh, it, you know, a lot of people don't really spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament generally. And we've been taught to read the Psalms devotionally, which means don't really pay much attention to what you read unless it's about loving kindness. You know, if you see that phrase in there, then you got something out of the Psalms for that day. The Psalms um, can be kind of like a medicine cabinet sometimes as yeah. well. It's like, oh, I fear such and such. Here's the Psalm to read, take two and call me in the morning. Yeah, you know, that, that that's sort of the way we've trained people, unfortunately, to read the Psalms. But there's there's a lot going on, you know, in them as well as other parts of Scripture, obviously. You know, any part of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So 
it, it's divine council, divine assembly. It derives from these passages. It, it's it's sort of an academic term nowadays in, in academia. You know, you'll you'll see it all over the place and in articles. Uh, for, for people who aren't used to thinking about it, I, I often use the term, well, it's just, a, it's just a, a substitute for heavenly host. You know, lots of people have heard that, you know, God among his heavenly host. But if you read Psalm 82 and some of these other passages, you know, the heavenly host does things. You know, in, in Psalm 82's case, there are certain members that are being judged for being corrupt. You know, they Daniel 7, you know, you get you get a meeting of the heavenly host. 1 Kings 22, you get a meeting. It's like a council meeting, a board meeting. You know, there, there's a lot that revolves around uh, the concept. And, and if you wanted to boil it down, uh, you know, to, you know, a sentence or two, it would be that the concept of the divine council is about how what God and his heavenly host do in the unseen world and how that intersects with our world. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of content in my book, The Unseen Realm, that discusses that specifically and then tries to illustrate how those ideas kind of wind their way through Scripture mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, how the terminology and, and the concept get repurposed in the New Testament, for instance. Um, so it's, a, it's an important concept. You know, I think when some people hear about this kind of idea of a remind think of something like say, I remember reading these books when I was a teenager, Frank Peretti's work such as Fifth Present Darkness and mm-hmm. such. And if they start thinking about that, is that anywhere close to what you're talking about? Well, it, when it comes to the Divine Council, again, the Heavenly Host, you, you've had the Old Testament, really the first 11 chapters of Genesis, um, and we have to bring in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9 here, and, and a few other passages from Deuteronomy for that matter. There, there have been three rebellions uh, within God's heavenly host. There have been three incidents where the first one was Genesis 3, where you have an individual who later gets called Satan, uh, is in rebellion. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the, the Tower of Babel incident, that's where you need to bring in the Deuteronomy material that references Babel. Uh, there, there are three divine rebellions. So the idea of, of evil spirits, you know, supernatural evil, like, you know, that Peretti uses for his novels, mm-hmm. it, it, it is and it isn't part of the council. If you're in rebellion to God, you are no longer in his employ. Okay, you're no longer working for God in, in his heavenly host. You're expelled. You're sent to the abyss, you know, in the case of the Genesis 6-3 people, the I shouldn't say people, but the, those beings, you know, the, the, the serpent, Satan, gets cast down. He becomes Lord of the dead, Lord of the underworld. The offenders, in the, in the case of what results in the wake of the Babel incident, you know, they, are, they get put over the nations, and they're the ones being judged in Psalm 82. So, you know, God essentially calls them, you know, to a meeting and says, you know, you're, you're basically dog meat. You know, you're, you're, you're going to die like men at some point. And, you know, there are other passages to talk about when that's going to be, mm-hmm. but they, they're not in God's employ anymore. So, yeah, they were, they had a certain status, but now they are estranged from God and in rebellion. Uh, and, you know, you have to throw in here, too, that what we think of as demons, like in the Gospels, they're not any of these three other groups. They're, they're, they're different. And that, that's something that most Christians have no concept of or no awareness of, because the way we're taught about demonology in church and in, in tradition, this is why the Naked Bible podcast, 
we don't we don't care about tradition. We care about understanding what the text says in mm-hmm. its own context. But what we're the way we're taught about these things in church tradition and in church itself is we we conflate all the bad guys into one bucket, one category. Uh, that is not the way an ancient person would have thought about them. They are they're differentiated. Uh, in certain respects, there are, term, there are terms that are used to sort of identify them in, in the same way. They're all, you know, supernatural beings, for instance. But then they're, they are described in certain ways as far as what happens to them, what their destiny is, where they come from. I mean, there, there's a differentiation going on. So, you know, Peretti is a, isn't a, a, an adequate analogy. It, it, there, there's some overlap there when we talk about rebellion. But... You know, past the rebellions, when Scripture talks about God holding a council meeting, like in First Kings 22 or Daniel, Daniel 7 or Daniel 4, when when the the Holy One, the Watcher, the Holy One, you know, uh, meets Nebuchadnezzar and says, "Hey, you're going to go insane for a little while," and he says, "This is by decree of the Watchers, plural," and he also says, "This is by decree of the Most High." Well, those are all good guys. But they're, they're beings loyal to the Most High, you know, to the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. So past the rebellions, the Divine Council really refers to the, the ones who are still loyal, you know, who are working for God. Mm. I'm curious also, talking about another Kitchener series, if you've ever interacted with the works of Brian Goddard. he's been on our show three mm-hmm. times, and he's written a series about eschatology, and he brings in your watchers. Oh yeah, are you familiar yeah, that, with that? Oh yeah, if if you read, I'm trying to remember I, the the first one of his fantasy series, mm-hmm. I think it was Chronicles of the one I, Yeah, the first one of those, and then there's something nonfiction. He has a long, it's either an appendix or an introduction, um, mm-hmm. where he basically says he he derived you know his material from from my stuff, and and I Brian and I know each other. We've known each other for years, and. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was nice of him, you know, to, to credit me there. So he's interacted with my stuff. It's, you know, that, that would be the right way to express it. But I, I like what he's, what he's done with it, you know, to take, you know, again, to take the, the, the supernatural material of scripture and in the, in the Chronicles series to sort of not, not, well, it is reimagining it, but it's not totally making stuff up out of whole cloth. I mean, he really makes an effort to translate the biblical content into fantasy type literature. And I think does a really good job of it. I mean, I've read a, a few of those, mm-hmm. uh, but he does a lot of work. He really does a lot of research. You know, he'll, he'll tap me for articles, you know, from time to time, or he'll have a question or something like that. So it's, you know, he, people should, should realize that when he gets into discussing what his process is and, and, that he's trying to take serious content and mm-hmm. then turn it into fiction. He, he's serious about that. He means it. He actually does a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Now, let's look at this, Divine Council. You uh, often, you've said in Marcos that this can be a good reply to the Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. too, because the Jehovah's Witnesses can, for instance, come and tell us that the Trinity is a pagan concept. It came from the Greeks, and it's not familiar at all. Bible, and of course, we all know, I mean, the Trinity doesn't show up at all in the Old Testament now, does it? Well, I I don't know that I, it depends how you word a question like that, mm-hmm. because if, if you're asking, well, 
Is there a verse like like the Great Commission where you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit mentioned, you know, that are connected to, oh, no, you don't have that in the Old Testament. Yeah. Are there indications of divine plurality where you have beings other than the, the transcendent Yahweh referred to as Yahweh or identified as Yahweh? The answer to that is yes. So it, it really depends on, on how the question is asked. I mean, I can, you know, the... There's a lot of this that people can can tap into online. I think the best thing uh, that I, that I've done that I would direct people to is Unseen Realm. I spent several chapters on this, but if they went up to thedivinecouncil.com, that's T H E D I V I N E C O U N C I L dot com, thedivinecouncil.com, there's going to be uh, material on there about the Old Testament concept of a Godhead, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I'll just relate. The last time a Jehovah's Witness came came to my door, you know, I, you know, unfortunately in the past, you know, I, I would either not talk to them or, or you know, kind of, kind of diss them in some way, you know, years ago. And I, I guess I've, you know, been convicted about that, you know, in in years, you know, that have passed by. So. I don't know, about a couple of years ago, you know, one came to my door and I, and I thought, you know, I'm going to engage this person in conversation and, and show them some things that I know are not in their script. Mm-hmm. So what, what you, the, the way that divine counsel stuff, the divine plurality idea really, you know, helps is I asked the, 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 the Jehovah's Witness, well, are, are you sure that God isn't an angel? Are, are you sure of that? And I, I know that, of course, they're going to deny that. They want Jesus to be an angel or some other created being, you know, mm-hmm. but they're for sure, you know, that, no, he's Jehovah. He's not, he's no angel, you know. So I said, are, are you sure? I, I asked two or three times, are you positive? You know, like, you know, like, you know, and they're just repeating the answers, you know, that denying this. So then I took them to Genesis 48, which again, I know is not on the script. And Genesis 48 is a really telling passage because it's one you see in Sunday school and kids are familiar with it. We're familiar with it when, you know, Jacob is about to die and he wants to bless Joseph's sons. You know, he's in Egypt now. And it's the scene where he crosses his hands, you know, to reverse the, the elder from the younger. And, you know, he has to tell Joseph why he's doing that. But we, that's the story we tell kids in, in Sunday school. What we don't tell them is what Jacob actually says. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, it's just a spell thing called a text, Dr. High, so it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, but here's what he says in verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God, and it's Ha-Elohim, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Next stanza is, The God, again, Ha-Elohim, who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And there's a third stanza, and you expect it to be the God who did some some other thing, you know, like, so you get this three stanza repetition of ha-Elohim, 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 but that's not what what is in the text. The third line says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and it's ha-mal-ach, and the kicker is the, the verb May, you know, may he bless the boys. The word bless there in Hebrew is grammatically singular. Mm-hmm. So you can't translate it, may they bless the boys. Like, like we're just throwing the angel into the mix. Mm-hmm. It's may he bless the boys. And so I, I went through that whole thing with the Jehovah's Witness and I said, now, you got a problem here. 
either God is an angel and you're wrong, or this particular angel is God. You know, and, and he looked at me like I had two heads, you know, like he just wasn't ready for that. And then you go from that point to, well, look, let's look at Exodus 23, where God says to Moses, you know, this is after giving, you know, the law at Sinai. He says to Moses, now look, you know, we, we did the law thing and it's time to sort of get the show on the road. So what I'm going to do here in verse 20, God says to Moses, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now the whole concept here that, that, that really needs attention is, is my name is in him. This is something Old Testament scholars are very familiar with called the name theology. And basically the phrase Hashem, the name, is used in a number of passages as a substitute for the divine name itself, for Yahweh. Yahweh is the name. And again, you could, you could go up to my website and look up you know, different passages to this effect. And in Deuteronomy, you know, God, you know, God or Moses, you know, e either one, are talking about, well, when you get into the land, you know, the, to the place where I will choose or God will choose to set my name or set his name, there. Well, he's not talking about, hey, when we get in the land, we need to find a spot to, to scratch four consonants into the ground. No, it's absurd. What he's talking about is that's the place where God's going to dwell. God's presence will be in this place. You know, they're going to put the, the, the temple there at some point, you know. Mm -hmm. So you, you have this substitution going on with Hash, Hashem, the name, and, and God himself. So when when God tells Moses, look, I'm going to send this angel, and he's going to, he's going to guide you to the promised land, and, and my name is in him. So this, one, this angel's different. You better not disobey him. He's not going to pardon your transgressions because my name is in him. What he's saying is, I'm in him. I'm in the angel. And this is borne out by asking a simple question. Who was it in the Old Testament? And we're going to throw the New Testament in here too. Who was it in the Bible? that brought the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. If you actually look up all the instances where that's described, you, you get, here, here's what you get. In some passages, it's the divine name, Yahweh, brought them out of Egypt, took them to the, took them to the land. In some cases, it's, it's Ha-Elohim, you know, God did that. In other cases, it's the presence, Panim did that. And then in other cases, it's the angel did that. You say, well, which one is it, Mike? I'm so confused. I got four choices here. Who brought them out of Egypt and took them to the land? Which one is it? Is it God? Is it Yahweh? Is it, you know, the presence? Is it the angel? And the answer is, yep. <laughs> because they're all interchangeable. They're interchangeable. And in the New Testament, who, who, did, who did that? In Jude, it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm going through all this with the Jehovah's Witness on my doorstep, you know, and, and it's like, look, you have a problem. You have a fundamental problem with your theology. Either, either God really is an angel or this particular angel is God himself. And he is identified as Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, none of that is in their script. And, and so it's like it's the deer in the headlights look. And and what you know what what this particular pair did was, they kind of looked at each other and looked at me and said, well, you know, they started talking about Jehovah again. I said, now wait a minute, you you have to come to grips with this. 
you know, I, I'm not, I'm not here like beating you over the head. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be mean to you, but this is your Bible, you know, and, and, and they just sort of, well, maybe we'll come back or send somebody else over here. <laughs> the answer ain't going to change. <laughs> it's, it's, this is your Bible. This is the text. And, and I, and I, I would say, now this is why, you know, Christians look at Jesus the way they do. It's one of, of, of a number of reasons, but this is why, and I, I, didn't, I didn't even use my New Testament. I used the Old Testament to do this. And, you, you know, there's, there's so many passages where this kind of thing is going on. And again, I devote three chapters to this in, in Unseen Realm. There's the Word of the Lord. You know, John 1, 1 is the Word. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses like to say the Word was a God. Well, if you, if you, if you take all of the instances of Theos, God, in, in the first chapter of John, and of course, if you expand it through the, to, through the New Testament, it gets even sillier. But if you, if you just take those instances where they say the definite article's not there, it just means Jesus was a God, a divine being. He's not really God. You know, well, okay, well, where else in, in John 1 is the word God missing the definite article? And then you show them those, and it, and, it, and it has God, you know, the Father, being just a God. I mean, it, it implodes. Their method implodes on itself. Mm-hmm. But, but what they do is they operate according to a script. They're, they're not used to actually looking at the details of the text. And there are just a number of ways that you can, you can help them, you know, to, to see, you know, get, get them to just try to pay attention to their Bible, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, divine plurality is an important idea. And it's not that all, here's where, here's where the Mormons go. The Mormons take this a different different way. They, the, the Mormons will go to Psalm 82 and they, they, they recognize, oh, there's lots of Elohim there. You know, Psalm 82 verse 1 and there's God and there's a bunch of other Elohim. And, and their tendency is to, is to say things like, well, all the Elohim are the same. You know, and then they add this idea, well, they were all once men, too. You know, God, the God of the Bible was once a man, and then he became a God, and now he gets his own planet, blah, 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 blah. And that's, this is why they have Jesus and Lucifer being brothers, because all the Elohim are all the same. You've seen one, you've seen them all. You know, I actually have, I believe I sent it to you, but I, I actually have a, an article. I was published in a Mormon journal mm-hmm. critiquing. Mormonism's use of Psalm 82. It's available free on the internet. If you if you Google Heiser, you know, scene one Elohim, uh, you know, you're, you're going to find the article. It's available for free. But they they make the crucial mistake of seeing all the Elohim as the same. Well, that's totally bogus because only one of those Elohim, namely Yahweh, the God of the Bible, God of Israel is described in specific ways in many passages that none of the other Elohim are. Only Yahweh is the creator. In fact, he created all the other Elohim. He's uncontingent. They are contingent. They are lesser. He is superior. He's ontologically different. He's he's sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. None of the other Elohim are ever described in these ways. So what I like to tell people you know, first of all, Elohim. You know, if, if you looked up the you know two thousand some were you know occurrences of the term, you'd find out there are five or six different things that are called Elohim in the Hebrew Bible, and that alone should tell you that the word itself, the word Elohim, is not about a specific set of unique attributes, because if it was, the biblical writers wouldn't be 
calling, they wouldn't be using Elohim for things that are not the God of Israel. They'd be more careful. So what all Elohim means is it's a term you would use to describe a being that by nature is a, is a disembodied member of the supernatural world. So you've got lots of those guys. You've got a whole heavenly host you know, of, of Elohim. But only one Elohim is Yahweh. Only one Elohim is sovereign, the creator, omnipotent, omniscient, all these, 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 these descriptions you get in the Bible. So Yahweh is an Elohim. But no other Elohim is Yahweh. Mm. That, that is biblical theology. And that's significant because back over to the Jehovah's Witness, if there's another being identified as Yahweh, that means you have divine plurality of a unique being. And that is the basis for Trinitarian talk you know, within Christian circles and, and even in the New Testament. Um, again, in Unseen Realm, I lay this all out uh, in detail, and, and it's readable. All you got to do is read the reviews on Amazon. I'm not writing this for scholars. Yeah. It's an academic work with lots of footnotes, but you know you don't you don't have to speak academese, you know, to to understand the content of the book. But I lay it all out, and it's important because not only do you have differentiation of Yahweh of Israel in the Old Testament. He's unique among the Elohim. He is species unique. But you also have plurality when it comes to that unique being. And again, that's the basis for Godhead thinking. So I actually did my dissertation on this, mm-hmm. you know, which is which, which when I tell people that, they're like, you got to be kidding. Because, I mean, I went to Wisconsin, which is like ultra liberal. My advisor was Jewish who, who didn't believe any of this stuff. And, and yet he let me do this topic. You know, and I, I was talking, the, 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 the dissertation dealt with divine plurality and how, how the Israelite understanding of this uh, was different from Canaanite and other ancient Near Eastern religion around them, and then how it became the basis for what Judaism used to call the two powers in heaven concept. Judaism used to believe in a Godhead until Christianity was born. So by the second century, Judaism declared it a heresy. But they, this was normal thinking. Why? Because they know their Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. But when Christians started to use this effectively in discussions about Jesus, um, then it became something that we're, we're just not going to talk about this anymore. Mm-hmm. And they became a heretical teaching. There's a whole book on that by Alan Siegel called The Two Powers of Heaven. It's, it's, it's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is all academically grounded material. Mm. This, is, this is exegetically defensible. Uh, I should throw in one, one more comment, you know, because some of your audience might be academics and they might you know, hear the angel stuff and say, well, well you know, in, in the ancient Near East, the, you know, when an angel, a messenger appeared before a, a certain person, they were treated like like." the messenger was that person, you know, but they weren't really that person. They just, they just talked that way. The angel, the messenger would present himself, you know, as, as the person who sent him. Well, that's nice. You know, that's true, but that isn't what's happening in Genesis 48. The messenger, the angel never says anything there. Mm -hmm. It's Jacob's assessment of a series of events in his life that involved the angel. And he identifies that angel as as God, as Yahweh, who who appeared to him in a number of places. In, in Genesis uh, thirty one, 
point blank, you know, the angel says to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel. And that was the first, that was the place where Jacob first encountered Yahweh. You know, if you go back and look at the passage, it, it's very coherent, it's cohesive. But you you just have to connect the data points. And unfortunately, not only are Jehovah's Witnesses not taught this because it would destroy their theology, obviously, but Christians aren't taught it either. Nope. And and they become sitting ducks. For, for people like, like a Jehovah's Witness or, you know, in, in Mormon, you know, on a different trajectory, because they don't know the text at, at a meaningful level of detail to be able to say, well, well here's where this, this concept of, of one God and three persons, here's where it comes from, here's where it begins, and then, you know, trace that through the Old Testament and see how the New Testament repurposes a lot of that Old Testament material that we just traced through. It, it lays it all out. That's where Trinitarianism comes from. It doesn't come from proof texts like the Great Commission. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from a, a theological framework that existed long before Jesus was ever you know, born of Mary. Uh, it, it, and that framework prepares people in the first century for understanding what Jesus was saying. Now, it's, it's more dramatic because... When we get to Jesus, you have the incarnation. You know that that's it, it's a whole other thing to say. Well, this this second Yahweh figure was like born of a virgin, traveled through the birth canal, you know, and mm-hmm. popped out the other end. You know, that's a little more dramatic. Plus, he he's he's a person that you're speaking to face to face, or you're listening to him preach. It it really becomes more, you know, colossal or or you know, more incredible. You know, in, in Jesus' own day, but the framework was all there. You know, there are, there's lots of two powers talk in Jewish texts, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. uh, well before the New Testament period. But people just aren't aware of it. So, on my podcast, on my blog, you know, we and, and in what I write, I, I want people to be aware of this stuff. Mm-hmm. They'll just they'll just get more out of Scripture. You got some discussion going on in the live stream here on my Facebook here about this. Uh, Someone's a uh, few things. One person is asking: When God speaks of other gods in the Old Testament, is he ever directly referring to actual supernatural beings, or is it always just things like statues or idols that some people worship? And we got a response to people: Someone saying that, well, Cal doesn't Paul make mention that the gods are demons? So I think you said something about this already. But yeah. that person, what's your take on this? The f- yeah, the, the first part is is yes. You know, when when God. When God claims at the Passover, this night I will have victory over the gods of Egypt, he's serious. Okay, these the, the gods are real supernatural beings. They are not idols. It's very easy to prove that if you go to Psalm 89. But let's start in Psalm 82. Psalm 82, you have Elohim, God, takes his stand in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, you have Elohim two times in the same verse. First time it's singular because of grammar. I won't bore you with talking about the nifal singular participle. Second one is plural. So you have God in the midst of a group of gods judging them, castigating them, excoriating them. Those gods are called sons of the Most High in verse 6. So the sons of God, okay, are these Elohim. They're sons of God are Elohim. It has to be that way because you can't have another Most High. That has to be the, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible in the first mm-hmm. verse. 
So if you take that information and go to Psalm 89, there you have, again, you know, God in, in the midst of this. And let, let's just read, you know, Psalm 89, because this, this is the, you know, the punchline here. It says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies, in the skies, in the heavenly realms, can be compared to the Lord, who among the B'nai Elim, the sons of God, is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Okay, the gods are not idols. You don't have idols floating around up in the skies or idols in the this, in this spiritual realm. You, neither do you have people. A lot of people will look at Psalm 82 and say, oh, those are just the Jewish elders or something like that. Hey, the last time I read my Bible, you don't have a bunch of Jewish elders ruling anything from the sky. Okay, these are, this, is, this is a reference to the heavenlies, the supernatural realm. So no, the, the gods of the Old Testament are not just idols. They're certainly not people either. And what that means is when, when you get a, a dozen or so references in the Old Testament where Yahweh is referred to as the God of gods, it means exactly what it says. He is the God over all other gods, superior to all other gods. It means exactly what it says. If you say, well, he's the, he, Yahweh is the God of beings we know don't really exist. That just sucks the glory right out of the passage. It makes a mockery of God. You know why? Because I can claim the same thing. I'm greater than beings that don't exist too. Mm. So are you. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go down that trajectory, you have just put God on a par with you. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry if, if the biblical text offends your sensibilities here. But that's better than putting God on your level. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it, it's just the way it is. It, it, it's the text. Mm -hmm. And we don't, this isn't polytheism again, because Yahweh is unique. He is the creator of all the others. Mm -hmm. He is the lone sovereign. He is the lone omnipotent one. He, this particular Elohim, is the only one that's eternal, that didn't have to be brought into existence. He is the creator of all things visible and invisible, in the heavenlies and on earth. No other Elohim is ever described that way. Yahweh is unique. Now, it, it's a problem that terms like monotheism can, you know, get in the way. And polytheism gets in the way. These terms don't work. Why? Because they're modern terms that are trying to describe what an ancient person thought. Monotheism was coined in the 17th century. Okay, it, 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 we're, better, we're better describing what the Bible says than, than looking for a label for things. Got Let me put it in a different way, you know, mm -hmm. real quickly. We are trained mentally. And again, it's not a sinister thing. It just, it just is the way it is. Mm -hmm. We're trained by our Western tradition, our Christian tradition, or in church or whatever. When we see the letters G, O, and D, our brain immediately assigns a specific set of unique attributes to the letters G, O, and D. That's why when we put an S on it, it creeps you out, you know. But, but the biblical writers did not think that way about the term Elohim. 
when they wrote Elohim or saw Elohim, they did not think of a specific set of unique attributes. How do we know that? Because they use Elohim of, of half a dozen different things that are not the God of, of Israel, that are not Yahweh. That tells you the term does not mean, a, you know, it doesn't point to a specific set of unique attributes. It's just a term you would use to say, oh, hey, there is a member of the spiritual world right there. That's an Elohim. Mm -hmm. That's why Samuel, in 1 Samuel 28, 13, the disembodied spirit of Samuel that comes up, you know, and, and basically tells Saul that, hey, we had this conversation earlier. You're toast. You're still toast. Quit bothering me. You know, Samuel is called an Elohim there. What, did Samuel all of a sudden become on, on par with the God of Israel? Does every dead person, a dead baby, you know, the, are they on the par with the God of Israel? No, that's stupid. It's ridiculous. The, the, he's called Elohim, you know, because now he's a member of the supernatural, the spiritual world, because he's dead. Okay, it, it, again, we're not taught to think carefully. We're not taught to even look at the text. For, you know, that, that's, that's the bad part. Mm. But even if, even if we're, we, we look at the text, we're not taught to think carefully about it. And that's all I'm trying to do. Yeah. We've got another person who's asked a question. He says, one of the things I struggle with most when learning about the beliefs of the ancient Near Eastern people is seeing how differently they view the world. Mm -hmm. For instance, they believe God lived on mountains. Basham was where the forces of darkness lived. They believe the mountains carried up a ferment, etc. As believers who want to take the teachings of the Bible seriously, where do we draw the line between what the ancient people merely believed and what God is teaching us? Is it possible the divine counselor is merely a part of their primitive worldview, just like the gods living on mountains, or is it something God is teaching us through his word? Well, I'm glad they used the word seriously instead of literally. Yes. That's, an, that's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you want something kind of detailed about this, as far as an answer, you go up to my homepage. It's drmsh.com. And then click on uh, the about and then go to the frequently asked questions. Because this is the last uh, question on the frequently asked questions page. But I'll summarize here. You know, Basically, what you have going on is... Divine counsel is, just like heavenly host is, a, a metaphor for how, how do we describe and express the hierarchical relationships that are in the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. So that, that, you know, you, you, if you're going to deny the counsel metaphor, you, you more or less have to deny the existence of angels and demons and Satan because they're all part of that world. So that, that's the first thing. But I, I think more fundamentally than that, is and this is the way I describe it on my frequently asked questions pages. When it comes to biblical writers, okay, writing about their the physical world in which they live, and and making certain statements about it, okay, there's a reason why they thought the way they did, and there's a way to understand the metaphor than the metaphors that they use. Let's take the matter of just cosmology generally here. Okay, the, the biblical writers had what we might call a pre-scientific, uh, you know, worldview. Like there's no germ theory. There, there's, there's never any male infertility in the Old Testament or the Bible. It's always female. Mm -hmm. Because they, you know, female can't can't have a child. You know, we've we've had you know sexual relations here you know, for years, and you can't have a child. There must be something wrong with you. Well, the problem might actually be with the guy, but they don't know that 
because they don't know anything about DNA, you know, and, and, and sperm cells and things like that. They just know the act of copulation should produce a child. If we don't get one, there's something wrong with you, dear, you know, pointing to the woman. It's always the female problem. You know, the, the, you, know you, you get yeah. pre-scientific statements in, in a number of places. You know, like I'm sorry, but it's, of, it's like the king of England who kept killing his wives because yeah. they couldn't give a, give a son. Well, now we know right. it's his issue. <laughs> Right, it's it's his issue. You know, they they don't know that. Um, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but the 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 seat of your emotions and the seat of your intellect is not your kidneys. Okay, it's not your your intestines. You know, people thought that way because when something happened to them, they had a a, a visceral response. You know, pun intended. They had a visceral response, but they didn't know that it was the brain that controlled all that. There's, there's no biblical Hebrew word for brain for that reason. Yeah. Okay, so, so these are just examples. So God knew when he picked these guys to write scripture, he knew exactly what he was dealing with. Okay, he knows that Moses or David or you know, some unnamed you know, biblical writer, he, he knows that they don't know a lot about the world around them. They don't, they're not scientists like we would define scientists today. You know, but did God care? No, he didn't care at all. He picked them to do the task. He allows them to make statements about their natural world and use the, the vocabulary of the natural world metaphorically to express ideas about the remoteness of the gods, the otherness of the divine world. That's why they put them on mountains, because mountains are remote. There's no REI store where ancient Israelites are buying equipment to climb mountains. They don't climb mountains. Okay, they don't do that. That's not part of their recreation. And they don't have TV and satellites to go look, you know, what's up there. Their world is, is quite different than ours. And so to express the otherness, the separateness, the distancing that the gods want from people, you put them on mountains. That's where you imagine that they live. Now, some, in some cases in, in the Bible, you actually get divine encounter on a mountain like Sinai, okay? And Mount Zion, they build a temple on a mountain. Why would they pick that? You know, why would they pick the, 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 uh, the elevated land? Because that, that's, you know, again, what we associate with deity. It, it, it denotes superiority, exaltation. In and Mount Carmel is where the battle of the gods takes place in First Kings. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, and, and the other, like, you know, what you're getting at is the fact that other ancient Near, Near Eastern people thought about this way, too. You know, and, and so when, when you claim territory you're, or you claim attributes, you know, for, you, you, know, you know, it's Yahweh who sends rain. It's not this doofus Baal, okay? You know, then you're going to appropriate Baal's imagery and you're going to change it to, to teach a theological lesson. Biblical writers do this a lot. So, so God knows that they are limited in what they know, they have words for these things in the natural world. And, and God says, it, it, perfectly fine. You know, use that metaphorically, you know, to convey this, this, this reality about me that I am high, I am exalted, I am remote, I'm transcendent. And there's no biblical Hebrew word for transcendent, okay? You, you, use, you use words like, hey, Yahweh lives on a mountain to convey the idea of transcendence. God knows what he's getting with these people. It's the same thing with gardens. Why do the gods live in gardens? Because it's the best place. This is a, a subsistence 
you know, agriculture, subsistence, you know, way of living. Daily bread was a big deal. There's no refrigeration. There's no grocery stores, okay? Getting enough food is difficult. It's an arid climate. This is why an oasis where there's abundant water and vegetation is just awesome. It's paradise. And surely wherever the gods are, it must be paradise. It must be total abundance. It's this unthinkably wonderful place. And so that's the way, you know, the, the divine abode gets described to convey the, the wondrousness, the, the bestness, <laughs> that's a word, of, of, of the presence of God. And lo and behold, you, the Old Testament people, they plant, you know, gardens. They plant trees where they have divine encounter. Again, to reinforce the idea. Our problem in this is that we have been taught, and this is why I, I appreciated the word take it seriously instead of take it literally. We've been taught this literalistic thinking that, that just can't even wrap our minds around metaphor anymore. Mm-hmm. We, we can't appreciate how language can be used to convey abstract thoughts anymore. We default to this literalistic nonsense, okay? Uh, you know, and, and we, we, just, we just miss the point in so many places. And, and metaphor is still taking the language seriously. That's why I like the word serious. Because you're, you're seeing what they pack into a word that transcends literalism. I'll, I'll give you a good example in English. If I say Las Vegas, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, there's a literal place. I can give you the latitude and the longitude from it. But if I say, if I talk about, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take my vacation in Las Vegas, you know, we're going to have a great time there, you know, what, what, what gets loaded onto that term metaphorically? Mm-hmm. Well, it's camp, it's maybe prostitution, it's, it's sin city. food, sin, it's Sin City, you know, it, it's like all of these things are abstractions that come from, derive from, or attach to a term like Las Vegas. Well, scripture is full of that. And, and we have been taught to, to, to look at the language they use about mountains and gardens and the windows of heaven, the pills of the earth, the pillars of the sky. We've been taught literalism so long that we, don't, you know, we, we either do something goofy with it and literalize all that, and then you get the flat earth people, okay? Or when, when, you, when you start looking at it metaphorically, it troubles people like, oh, I, I, I can't, I'm not taking it literally anymore. Maybe these things aren't real. No, metaphor only works when what you're talking about is real. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the way metaphor works. You're using a thing that a person knows in the real world, and you're using that term to describe an abstract or spiritual reality on the other side. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but we have we have just had. We've had intelligent thought about language beaten out of us in church. I mean, I, I hate to put it that way, but that, that, that's just where, that's where we've gone. Mm-hmm. And it's really unfortunate because there's just no way that you can grasp the depth of scriptural ideas if you can't think about language abstractly and metaphorically. Look at Leviathan. 
I mean, like you have these creationist websites. Oh, there must have been dinosaurs back in the Bible days because it talks about Leviathan. He had a big tail and, you know, teeth. and You know, mm-hmm. look, Leviathan comes right out of Canaanite literature. Litanu is the Canaanite term for Leviathan. It refers to a chaos dragon. What's a chaos dragon? A dragon that represents the idea of chaos, which is all the things that are opposed and hostile and working against the order that God wants in the human habitable world. It becomes a metaphor for evil and disruption and crisis and chaos and death and disease. I mean, the, the, the term... Leviathan conveys all these things. They're just packed into that one term. And, and even the term sea itself, it's why John at the end of Revelation says there's no more sea in the, in the new creation. It doesn't mean there's no salt water. Okay? It means there's no more death and chaos and disease and, and all the things that are hostile to God's will and, and his people. But like I said, we have had this beaten out of us. And it, it's, just a, it's just a crying shame that we can't read Scripture anymore the way an original writer would have wanted us to understand it. It's like we're incapable of it. And, and my mission, if I have one as a biblical scholar, is to try to recover that. To try to, to try to help people navigate. I'm, I'm not someone who tells people what to believe. I'm a navigator. Okay, I, I'm a navigational guide to people who want to study Scripture. And, and, and that is my hope, that, that you, will, you will see how it works often enough that as a Bible student, you will become sensitized mm-hmm. to, to reading Scripture through ancient eyes. Not, not through the, the eyes that, that, you know, we have sort of trained people to have. Back to the mind, everyone, at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast at Halfway Point here. We got Dr. Michael Heiser talking about the Divine Counselor. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking about the New Apostolic Reformation. Super Apostles in the Church. Should we be concerned? Harvey Pivik is going to be my guest next week. Possibly Douglas Guy, but if he gets back from a trip in such a time. But definitely Harley Pivik. So I hope you'll be tuning in then. Now, Dr. Heiser, we've got, so we've got this, uh, several questions showing up here in the live stream as well. How would Heiser answer the objection that God's name is Yahweh, while Christians use the name Jesus from the Old Testament says Yahweh is his name forever? Well, it, it is. Mm-hmm. Yahweh, Yahweh incarnate is a different person. Mm-hmm. Same essence, different person. You know, let, let, me just, let me just get myself in trouble here. I don't understand why people care about this kind of topic because, you know, Jesus in Swahili is going to be something different you yeah. know, than it is in Greek, than it is in Hebrew. It's the same person. You know, don't get hung up on, on language. It, it, it's a myth that Jesus, you know, derives from Zeus, for instance. You can go up to my website or I, I recommend people just go to Google, go to put in drmsh.com and put in Zeus or put in Jesus' name or something like that, or divine name, or just the four consonants, Y-H-W-H. I have, there are a number of posts on, on this kind of thing. You know, it, that Jesus and Zeus, that's a myth. You, you, you can't even know the letters of the Greek alphabet and, and make that argument because the letters don't even correspond. 
you know, it, it's just, it's another example of what I call paleo babble online. Just this just crazy stuff that people say about the ancient world or, you know, even, even theological stuff that just has no basis in the, in the reality of the text or, you know, other, other things that we have from the ancient world. So, you know, don't, don't worry about, you know, this kind of thing. Jesus, the man, you know, who was born of Mary, okay, God incarnate, that was the name that the angel told them to call him. You shall call his name Jesus. You say, well, in Aramaic, it was probably Yeshua or something like, well, go ahead and call him that. We just don't have an Aramaic New Testament. We actually don't have any proof that there ever was an Aramaic New Testament. You know, it, it, it might make sense for Matthew, but there's no manuscript data anywhere in the world that has an Aramaic New Testament that, that predates you know, the, the Greek material we have. There are targums, which are translations of the Greek New Testament into Aramaic or Syriac. If you want to call him Yeshua, you want to you know, reimagine that as the Aramaic name for Jesus, the, what would have come out of Mary's mouth as an Aramaic speaker, go ahead. But it's perfectly fine to call him Jesus because God in his providence chose to give us the New Testament in Greek, not Aramaic. So why get bent out of shape over it? Mm -hmm. you know, someone has asked, is there a book you can recommend to help and challenge us to read right way? Would it be the unseen realm or something else? You know, I, I'm not saying this to be self-serving, but yeah, it is. The unseen realm is designed to be a starting point. I, I, I say this in the introduction, see the introduction of the preface, that I view Unseen Realm as giving the reader the lay of the land. It's, it goes from Genesis to Revelation. I show you lots and lots of threads in the tapestry of Scripture. Unseen Realm is about how Scripture interprets Scripture. It's about interconnectivity. It's about the connection between the heavenly realm and, and the earthly realm, but also intertextual connections. So if you knew the content of Unseen Realm really well, that gives you the lay of the land for understanding the whole of Scripture. And then you can sort of drill down wherever you want. I mean, succeeding books that I've, I've written or, or am writing, they are drill downs in, into different topics and different subjects. So the best thing for sort of getting a feel for this is Unseen Realm. Now, I would say if you're going to go beyond that, like what's the next thing you should read? And you don't really want to drill down. Like reversing Hermon is a drill down. How does the story of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 bleed into the New Testament? That's the drill down. Angels, you get a number of drill down points. But if you want something that's still sort of broad, like, you know, in coverage topically, I would recommend Walton's book on uh, the Old Testament and ancient Near Eastern thought. Mm. Mm. Um, because the, then, you know, he'll, he'll have a chapter on sacred space. He'll have a chapter on priesthood. He'll have, you know, and, and he'll connect these things with their ancient Near Eastern framework. Um, so if you were, if number two, again, if you still want to be broad, uh, I would recommend that book. You know, on the New Testament side, I don't think there's anything quite the equivalent of, uh, of Walton's book. If you went up to my website, uh, again, drmsh.com, and at the top of it, there's a there's a header about uh, resources. I think it says that I have in the drop down menu. There's uh, books recommended books. Look at some of the choices under Second Temple 
uh, Second Temple Judaism or Second Temple literature. Mm -hmm. You won't find anything quite the equivalent of Walton, but there, there's good stuff there, you know, mm -hmm. to, to help you get it, get that into your head, Second, Second Temple, Temple stuff. Yeah, I just did some checking for Ian. Listeners. If you want to get the Unseen Realm right now on Amazon, the time of recording, the hardback is $19. The Kindle version is five ninety nine. There's an audio version, too, yep. on audible.com. Yeah. Now, we've also had someone else ask this question. This refers more to heaven architecture and such as where. Is the resurrection of Jesus necessary for, to provide atonement? Is there an actual temple that Jesus, the high priest, brought his blood into? I mean, Hebrews does seem to speak of a temple in the heavenlies and such. So what do you think about that? I think the resurrection is necessary yeah. for... Uh, for having everlasting life, you know, atonement is too broad of a term, and and it it's a difficult term because of the way again Christians are taught. They're taught to read Leviticus through the lens of what happened on the cross. Okay, and that that's just a mistake. For instance, even the Day of Atonement, what happens with the blood in, Le in Leviticus 16? The blood is never applied to a person. In fact, the blood is never the blood of any sacrifice is never applied to a person in the Torah, except for two exceptions, and that is the sanctification of the priesthood. You know, like when the priesthood gets started up, and then the Day of Atonement, you know, is, is sort of hitting the reset button. You know, an annual reset button for not for people that the blood doesn't atone for a person's individual sins. The blood is actually applied to the sanctuary, to the mercy seat, you know, other parts of the holy place. You know, the Holy of Holies. And, and you see this with other um, sacrifices. The blood is poured out, you know, at the altar. It, it's never, it never gets applied to people. The, the second exception is the covenant, the law covenant at Sinai when uh, Moses sprinkles blood on the people. Um, but again, it's not about sin. It's about entering into, into the covenant. You know, there's no, there's no language in Exodus where this happens about, oh, now you're, now you're forgiven for you know, your moral wrongdoings or anything like that. The, the whole system is just different than than what happens on the cross. Now, if if we understand both sides of that, you can see touch points. You know, the in the Old Testament system, you're you're basically sanctifying or decontaminating sacred space. If a person violates the law and they go and touch a corpse or something like that, well, then now they they can bring pollution into sacred space when they you know, when they get too close to it or when they bring some offering for some other occasion. So they have to be purified. They didn't commit a moral evil. You know, interestingly, there are no sacrifices for things like adultery and steal. You know, it's just you, you have to pay reparations and then you have to be made fit to occupy sacred space again. If it's a severe enough crime, it's the death penalty. There is no sacrifice for that. So sacrifices in the Old Testament are about decontaminating sacred space, decontaminating people so they can occupy sacred space. They are not about atoning for moral sins. And that sounds very strange to people, but it sounds strange because they've read Leviticus through the lens of the cross, which is not the way you're supposed to read it. Mm -hmm. Now, we look at the cross, and, you know, the, the, the death of, of, of Jesus on the cross really did provide a way to God. It, it sanctifies people, so now they can go before God themselves. They can go, they can approach the throne with boldness. Mm -hmm. Okay, they don't. They don't need to be decontaminated all the time. It's a once-for-all offering that makes them fit for sacred space. 
fit for the presence of God, both now in terms of prayer and worship, and ultimately as a family member, you know, with, with God for, for everlasting life. So, again, a, a statement like, do the, do the sacrifices apply to atonement? First of all, we have to know what we're talking about when it comes to atonement, and, and there's a lot of disconnection there, which is why I approached the question the way I did. But I would say certainly the resurrection is, is crucial um, in that everlasting life, you need to defeat death. Okay, the, the, the Messiah had to die because the, the, the death problem has to be defeated. The only way you defeat death is through resurrection. The only way you can have a resurrection is if there's a death. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got to rise from the dead to have a resurrection. You know, so it, 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 of course it's necessary. It, and you back it up one step. The incarnation is necessary not only for that reason, that somebody can die and then rise again, but the incarnation is also necessary for fulfilling all the covenants because the covenants were made with humans. Mm-hmm. You know, humans fail invariably and inevitably and exhaustively. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the only way you can get the, the, the covenants fulfilled without changing the terms, in other words, without cheating, is God has to become a man and do it himself. And he does. I mean, all these concepts are interrelated, and they're important, not only to you know fulfilling all righteousness, the covenants, but having everlasting life on the other side. And part of that is taking care of, of the pollution problem, pollution of sacred space, and also moral evil. Um, you know, because you need to be forgiven for the sins that have resulted in your estrangement from God. So forgiveness is part of the picture, but, you know, we, we can't really use a word atonement and, and kind of capture everything that really needs to be talked about with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, there's the second part also asking if there's an actual template Jesus brought his blood into. Now, Hebrew seems to indicate there is, but when you get to Revelation, there is no temple in the city. So, what's going on? Uh, we don't... Yeah. Why is there no temple in, in Revelation? Mm-hmm. And because, but is there an actual temple on that? See, I, I, don't, I don't... Well, John says there's no temple in, in the new earth. Yeah. Okay, we don't need one. Why? Mm-hmm. Because we're the temple, and, mm-hmm. and we're the temple because we are members of his body, mm-hmm. who according to the New Testament was the temple as well. Again, we, we, we miss the logic of, of phrases like body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, when Jesus goes in, into the temple, you know, the, the physical one, and he starts saying, you know, he says, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. You know, they're looking around like, well, you're just a crazy man because it took us a long time to build this thing. And, and, and you know, the, the text says he was speaking of his body. Jesus' body is the temple. Why, why would that make sense? Because what was the temple in the Old Testament? It's the place where God dwelled. It was where the presence of God was. Where's the presence of God then? It's in Jesus because Jesus is God incarnate. Of course mm-hmm. he's the temple. And when we are united to him through his death you know, and resurrection, we become the temple as well. This is why Paul calls us the temple. That's why Peter uses temple terminology of us, you know, the, the building stones thing. Mm-hmm. Again, th- this language, the, the New Testament writers don't pick this language because they want to vary their vocabulary so they can get an A on their essay. Okay? They're using language drawn from the Old Testament to, to fill your head with Old Testament things and then align them with Jesus and in this case even, even ourselves. You know, the, the, you know, 
our, our body, we are the temple of the living God. I mean, Paul uses that, that terminology to the Corinthians. I mean, it, it's a spectacular thought. So if Jesus is in the new earth and we're there as believers, we don't need a building. Mm-hmm. Okay. We need him. <laughs> you know, and we got that. We check that off the list. He's there, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a lot of a lot of again common thinking about the temple, you know, it revolves from this this inordinate love or, or or connection to literalism, like this this sort of mythologized need for literalism. And we miss, when we do that, we miss the New Testament temple language. New Testament temple language is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, because it links us back to the old. Now, in Hebrews, it makes sense for Jesus to take the blood into the heavenly temple. Why? Because that's what they did in the Old Testament. It sanctifies the sacred space. So again, you're you're made fit. You know, your sacred space is decontaminated through the blood of Jesus, which is an eternal event. And so we don't need to do it again. So you can approach the throne of God, throne of grace, with boldness. You can you have access yourself. You don't need a priesthood. You have access to God yourself if you're identified with Christ, you know, if you're, if you're part of the body of Christ because of, of his work. So again, there, the book of Hebrews is applying what, what's going on ritualistically uh, back in Leviticus 16 in, in that particular instance. Back to the mind, one of this point, you're listening to the Wars podcast. Everything we do here is listening and supported by people like you. So, uh, I encourage you to go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link on my side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click the there in the thing in there, the sublink or whatever you want to call it, and it takes you to a ministry of risen Jesus. Are you still in the right place? Yes, yes, you are. Mike and Debbie Lacona, they're my in-laws. You make a donation, and... You get in touch with Mike or you or me or my wife, Al. You say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We'll give that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy ebooks that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed of the Zeiss Christian, or Co-Written, God and Natural Disasters, um, Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions, and... Uh, also, um, guys, I, I want you to really uh, pay attention to this point as well. Um, women in your life like jewelry, for the most part. I mean, my wife's even allergic to knicker, and she loves jewelry, too. So, if you want to get in good with a lady in your life, try some jewelry. And we have a friend who sells jewelry for us through Premier Jewelers. And if you purchase anything there... 25% of what you purchase go to deeper waters. So, guys, you know what I've told you? You can buy something for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or, you can buy something special about that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, please, guys, share the podcast, talk about it, go on iTunes and leave a positive review. You have no idea how much this means to me. Now, Dr. Heiser, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Sure. And people could go to my website, drmsh.com, and on the right-hand side, there's a button of donation. The name of my nonprofit is McClot, M-I-Q-L-A-T. 
that will take you to the website, miqlat.org, miqlat.org. And right, again, as you mentioned in the intro, our big projects right now are translating uh, the materials that I have translation rights to, which includes Supernatural. But we'll also, in 2019, include uh, a, a book that is almost completed on, uh, on discipleship, really presenting the story of the Bible um, to someone who has no biblical frame of reference at all, and then talking about what is the gospel, what isn't the gospel, and then what does discipleship mean? What does it mean to imitate you know, Jesus, so on and so forth? So it's a, it's a short book, but hopefully by Thanksgiving we'll be selling that on Amazon, and then the, you know, we're going to devote the proceeds of that to translating that in as many languages as we can. Right now, uh, the Supernatural Translation Project, we have... I think, I actually have one in my inbox now. We have 14 languages posted at miklot.org. You can just go up to resources and translations and see those um, Word docs, PDFs, some, some Kindle files. And they are there to be pirated. You know, I, I, have, I have the problem of not knowing or not knowing enough internet pirates. I, I want that stuff, like I want the Arabic version of Supernatural on every phone in Iran. That, that was the, the, the dream. Every phone in China, every phone in Russia. You know, I just don't know how to do that. But there are people out there in the, in the world of the Internet that know just how to do that. So please, steal the translations. Please. And it will create more material for you to steal and walk into a cafe in, in Tehran and put a mobile hotspot there and stick that baby on every phone. Okay, that, that, that's what we want to see happen. Because <laughs> in those, in those kind of contexts, that's how you evangelize. That's how you, you disciple people. You've got to get the material. And so we're trying to produce as much of my content in translation so people can have it for free as we, as we can. I mean, we do other things at McLaughlin too, but that's, that's what's driving the bus right now. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hodge, when this new book comes out, I can guarantee you we definitely would be glad to promote it on this show. Well, thank you. Now, we've had someone else ask this question now. How would you address first Enoch and our second temple writings, and how should we use them? Yeah. Well, you, you, your listeners might want to sit down here. If, <laughs> if you're driving, pull over to the side of the road, because I'm going to say something deeply profound and shocking. Okay, give, give me a second to do that. Bracing myself right now. Brace yourself right now. Here it comes. New Testament writers read books. There you go. New Testament writers read books. I don't books they read. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that shocking? Yeah. And they read stuff. They were educated people, you mean? They they, absolutely. They were intelligent people, and they read books. Mm-hmm. And, and they had, when they read books, they had the content you know, floating around in their head. And occasionally, they found that content useful to express a, an idea in their own writings that we have in the New Testament. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that, that the content wasn't just downloaded into their brains, or we don't have the matrix where, like, God just plugged them in in the back of their neck, and out comes the, you know, the book, the Gospel of Matthew, or something. No, they read books. Now I, I'm being facetious here, but I'm, there's actually a, a stream of seriousness here. We are taught too often to look at the Bible like it's a channeled book. 
okay, like like the writers were possessed, and their their minds were were put on hold, and their arm just started flailing away, and out came you know the book, and then they they snapped out of their trance state and looked down at the table and said, "Wow, I can't wait to read that. Did I write that? But I bet that's good." Yeah, you know, Greg Coco is about somewhere in Germany. Hey, man, you are you rhyme? I don't know it's Greek. Right, you know, it, it's it's just we we have the craziest thoughts about inspiration. Inspiration is about the providential preparation of God of these individuals from the time they were born to the to the occasion that you know God you know created the circumstances, put them in circumstances where you know whatever they write needed to be written, and they are prepared and able to do so, and and, and by virtue of their the providence in their lives, they did a good job, and and part of that was reading stuff, including like their Old Testament. You know, they don't always use the same passage in the Old Testament the same way. There, there, there are hundreds of things that defy a channeled way of looking at inspiration when it comes to the way New Testament writers repurpose the Old Testament, and when it comes to the way New Testament writers either quote or allude to books like Enoch, and they do. You know, Paul alludes to secular Greek poets. It happens all the time. So here's, here's how I, I set up to the question that way, you know, for a specific reason. When it comes to Enoch, I don't think it's inspired. I don't mm. care. I don't even care about the question anymore. I mean, I, I know why people ask it because Enoch gets quoted, and there's lots of really cool stuff in, in Enoch. Of course, there's lots of really ridiculous stuff in Enoch, too. But, you know, people kind of gravitate toward Enoch, and then they wonder, well, should we have it in our Bibles or something like that? You know, they never ask the question, should we have the Baal cycle in our Bibles? Because guess what? That's quoted in Psalm 29, Psalm 74, but they don't know about that. Okay, it doesn't matter that a book gets quoted in your Bible. There's no reason to consider Enoch canonical or sacred. I mean, it has defenders. I could count them on one hand in the early church, and they were good, good men, you know. Uh, but they, they gave up on it because here's another shocking thought. Like, like Tertullian actually writes this. He's like, well, I'm getting old. And I'm still like kind of out here. I'm the only defending Enoch, you know, for the New Testament, and nobody else really does. And I'm just going to give it up. <laughs> I, I'm I'm going to assume that the Spirit of God has moved through the mass of the church to direct them to make draw the right conclusion here. I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. That's what we need. We need that kind of humility that kind of assumption that the Spirit of God will actually do his job. So how should we look at Enoch? We should look at it as an ancient book that New Testament writers were very familiar with and that they found useful in their own content along the way. So how, how, what should we do with that knowledge? Well, you know what I recommend we do? I should read the books that biblical writers read. Read them. Mm-hmm. Read it. Read Jubilees, you know. Read you know Second Temple stuff. Read the Baal site. Read all. Read that stuff. Why? Because if you if you have a, a basic knowledge of the content of that material, that will make you a more intelligent reader of your Bible, mm-hmm. because you'll be able to pick up what they're laying down a little more efficiently. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll know what they're doing in, in, in a little bit better way. Well, let's look at Psalm 82. You know, also since it's been talked about so much, and this is the one that Jesus even referenced. 
in John 10 where he says, you know, scripture says to a bunch of others, you are gods, so how can it be wrong that I refer to myself as God? And it, it's a confusing passage to a lot of people. What's going on in the passage? Yeah, it's, it, it's confusing because commentators, again, will, will insert people into it. Again, Psalm 82 has plural Elohim in the ver- first verse. Those Elohim are the sons of God, the sons of the Most High in verse 6. You go over to Psalm 89, and the same language is used of the count of heavens. We're not talking about people here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- this is a default view to make divine plurality go away. The rabbinic community use this because they don't like divine plurality for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And then Christians bought into it because most of the church fathers, uh, really after the time of Augustine, I would say none of the church fathers except Jerome could read Hebrew. Okay, they, they, don't, they, they can't work in the primary texts. They're, they're centuries removed, in some cases a millennia or more removed from the original context that would help you, you read Psalm 82 better. So there's a lot of reasons why, you know, we get the, the people thrown into Psalm 82 for coherent reasons, but there's a lot of reasons nevertheless. But here, here's, you don't, you don't need to know a whole lot of that stuff to, to really, you know, see that when Jesus quotes the passage, he's not comparing himself to people. Okay, if you go to John 10, just think about the passage. Okay, in verse 30, Jesus has just said, I and the Father are one. Now, you know, you can do, you can call out hermeneutical SWAT teams, you know, like I guess Unitarians would do and say, well, he didn't, Jesus didn't mean that he was like of the same essence. You know, he, he just meant he was like one in purpose. Or, well, that's nice because in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. As soon as he says it, Jesus answered them, I have many good works from the Father. This is wonderfully sarcastic on Jesus' part. I love this verse. Jesus answered and said, well, for which of the good works from the Father are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make your God. Okay, they're looking at John 10.30's statement, I and the Father are one, as a claim to deity. And they don't like it. So then Jesus just being an Elohim or are they looking to be Yahweh? Well, I, I, would say, I would say it's going to be Yahweh, and here's why. When Jesus quotes Psalm 82 in the very next verse, here's Jesus' proof text for, for claiming you know, that his statement, I and the Father are one, are, are legitimate. He quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. You know, he says, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Okay, let's just stop there. Now, if, G- if Psalm 82 is about people, Jesus is saying, well, look, look, fellas, calm down. You know, oh, okay, I, I, I've referred to myself, I've said I and the Father are one, and Jesus you know, changes the language a little bit that I'm the son of God. You know, but, but you know what? You guys can say the same thing, too. Don't you know Psalm 82, verse 6? You know, I said you're gods. Well, then that, you know, that's about the Jewish elders. That's about the Israelites that received the law. All of you, all of you are sons of God. So, so, you know, don't get mad. You know, back off. Okay, how, does th- how is that a defense of his deity? How is it a defense against blasphemy? 
because they don't read it that way. The Jewish response tells you they are not reading what he said that way. And he follows it by something even more important. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand. Here it is, that the father is in me and I am in the father. Mm -hmm. And you juxtapose verse 30, I and the Father are one, with those with that statement, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then in the middle, when he quotes Psalm 82, if Jesus is just saying, I'm like the rest of you guys, that makes no sense at all. <clears throat> that makes use of Psalm 82, verse 6, a contradiction to what precedes it and what follows it. And my view is that Jesus doesn't contradict himself, folks. So what does he mean by referring to Psalm 82? My view, and again, if, if people want to go up to thedivinecouncil.com, I have a paper posted there that I read at an academic conference. Again, what, what I do, I, I, I take before my peers. I don't hide from my peers in, in doing my research and my writing. Okay, you, you can go up and read my conference paper there that, that lays the whole thing out. What I think is going on in, 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 Psalm, in John 10 is Jesus is not undermining his own deity. He's not contradicting himself. He says, okay, fellas, you, you got mad that I said I and the Father are one. You got mad that, that I said I'm, I'm the Son of God. Well, let's go back to Psalm 82. Remember Psalm 82, verse 6, when God is speaking to this group of Elohim from verse 1, and he says to them, I said, you are gods, you know, all of you. The rest of the verses, sons of the Most High, nevertheless, you're going to die like men. Remember that verse? When he says to the, the Elohim of the council, you are gods, you Elohim. What's his point? He knows in verse 6 that the Elohim are called sons of the Most High. And he has referred to himself as a son of the Most High, a son of God. When he goes to Psalm 82 for this, he's saying, hey, fellas, there is a passage in your own Bible that actually tells you and tells the rest of us here that there are sons of God out there who are more than men. Okay, that's step one. Getting them, you know, snagging them with their own Bible and saying, sons of God. Okay, there are sons of God out there that are more than one or more than men. And then, he, then that he, they would naturally ask the question, well, well, you know, does that mean you're just one of them? You know, like, well, what are you talking about here? And no, 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 guys, I'm not just one of them. Remember I just said I and my father are one? And in, in case you missed that point, let me follow it by saying this. The father, you know, the, the one running the council, the one speaking to the other Elohim, the father is in me. And I am in the Father. Is that clear enough for you? <laughs> well, they and and they flip out. Verse thirty-nine. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. In other words, the Jews in the scene are not interpreting it as referring to them. So why should we? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you why we do it. Because we're either ignorant mm -hmm. of divine plurality or we don't like it. Mm -hmm. That's why we do it. 
Jesus does not contradict himself. He does not undermine his claims of being in the Father and the Father in him and being one with the Father by quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. He does not undermine himself. Now, someone could say, well, could Jesus perhaps be having some more sarcasm here? Maybe, for instance, it's usually thought Psalm 82 refers to the wicked leaders of Israel, and Jesus is comparing himself and saying, look, if these wicked leaders can be called God, how much more can I, a righteous one, be called right. God? Is that possible? Because it's- because in Psalm 89, we don't have wicked Jews ruling from the heavens and, you know, in the skies. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, you, you have to have a, a full, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Divine Council, Sons of God, Psalm 82, Psalm 89, again, mm-hmm. uh, and other passages. Okay, you do not have Israelite leaders. You do not have men, good or bad, ruling in the heavens with God. You Mm -hmm. don't have that in your Bible. So don't import it into John chapter 10. Otherwise, you are, by definition, just making stuff up. Not only that, but you never have in, in, in some people, well, these are Israelite judges, and then they'll go to Exodus 18. Read Exodus 18. If you have Bible software, you can make you know the, the word Elohim, you know, highlight in your text. Like if, if you have Logos, you can make it highlight in your English text. You know, search on a Hebrew term and get it to highlight, pop up in English. All the occurrences of Elohim can, and, and in many translations are, be translated with capital G-O-D. Okay, in the passage that everybody refers to about the appointment of Jewish elders, the judges there and the elders, that both of those Hebrew terms are never equated and never identified with, never even mentioned in connection with the word Elohim in that passage. Never, not once. But somehow we suck theology out of that thing, and then we import it, we suck it into Psalm 82, and then we can suck it into John 10. Again, we either are ignorant of divine plurality, in other words, how to, how to understand that in, in his right context so that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is still unique. We either don't understand how to do that or we just don't like it. I can't find that in the Westminster Confession, so it must be wrong. Well, I'm sorry, I don't really care about the Westminster Confession at that point, you know, because the Westminster is not the biblical text. Mm-hmm. I care about the biblical text in context. And I have the same theology you do. I'm a Trinitarian. You know, I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. And, you know, I mean, all I'm trying to get you to see is that you need to read your Old Testament in light of its own context and not a context that happened, you know, 3,000 years later or whatever it is. You know, it, 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 it's foolishness to think that something that happened in 157 Reformation, oh, well, that, that's how we interpret our Bible now, even though that happened in 1517, the Old Testament was written 2,500 years earlier. That's just absurd. But, but that's, what, that's what we teach people to do. It's how them to think. And it's just, it's kind of shocking, you know, to, to me when, when, you know, even still, and I'm not saying that you have to read Unseen Realm to find the gospel. That's, that would be just as ridiculous and, yeah. frankly, even more ridiculous. But what I'm saying is if you don't, if, if, if you're not in the habit of doing this, having the Israelite in your head, interpreting Scripture through its, its own original context, you miss the interconnectivity of Scripture. You miss how Scripture uses other Scripture. 
you miss the ability to follow threads through the entire Bible and see how ideas and passages are connected. You can't do that if you cut off, you know, the supernatural. A lot of, you know, a lot of your Bible, you you can't do it. You can't see it. You have blinded yourself. Now you can still get the gospel story and believe, and, and I hope you do. But but you're missing a lot that goes on in your Bible. You know, a lot of just intuitively know. And they think, and maybe some of them even verbalize it and they get into trouble at church. But a lot of them really feel, they have this sense that, you know, there's just got to be more to the Bible than what I'm getting. There's got to be more to the Bible than what I've heard in church the last four, five, 10, 20 years. They, they, they know that they're missing something, but they don't know what it is. Okay, I know what it is. I had to travel that journey myself first, and I put 15 years into this book, The Unseen Realm, because I don't want to be sitting there. I remember distinctly sitting in, in Memorial Library at the University of Wisconsin, just enjoying myself, you know, like, like oh, this is just so cool. You know, here I am, a doctoral student. I've taught biblical studies for five or six years, and, and it's like I, I'm reading the Bible again for the first time. This is just so stinking awesome. And I, and, I, and the thought popped into my head. And again, I attribute it to Providence, you know, that, that the thought popped into my head, you know what? 95, maybe even better, 95% of believers will never have this experience. They will never see these things. Because you're only seeing them because you're, you're doing academic stuff and you were provoked by a set of circumstances, forced to look at certain passages in their own context, and then you struggled through the process of understanding. Okay, most Christians will never have this experience. Mm-hmm. And that was a terrible thought. And it, it, again, I, I, could, I, could, I, I just remember it because that was the moment when what would become Unseen Realm was born in my head. I thought, you know what? I can do that. I, I can make this yeah. stuff decipherable to <clears throat> people who care. You know, and, and you know, here we are. Now, now it's over 20 years later, but I have to agree with you on so much there about people in church thinking there has to be more and such. They, they know. I, thinking I people know when they're not being asked to think. Yeah. And, and experienced Christians just, again, I've met so many that have this intuition that it's got to be more of this. Got to be more of this. Because they, they've sat through years of, of eternal Sunday school. Oh yeah, it's the stories. It's the same passages, and no matter what passage it is, you 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 know you burp out Jesus on the other end. You know it, it becomes a Sunday school story just with adult illustrations. And and after years and years and years, they just kind of sense that this is a thick book. There's there's a lot of really unusual, strange stuff going on here. There's just got to be more to it, mm-hmm. and they're right. They are, you're, if that's you listening to this, if that's you, your intuition is correct. Yeah. You're the one that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, what, the reason I wrote Unseen Realm was to try to give people the lay of the land. Here is your entry point. If, if, you, if you can you know, handle the content, you will read your Bible again for the first time. You will never read your Bible the same way. I know that because it happened to me. 
It's not marketing shtick to get people to buy a book. It's real. Okay, I, I've, I lived it. I have lots of readers who've lived it after me. It, there's just so much you're missing. <laughs> there's just so much you're missing. I don't know how many times I've sat in church services and been absolutely bored with what I'm hearing because it's all the same thing over and over and it's the same thing. And here's how you be a good person again. As if that's the whole point of Christianity. Dare I say it, maybe when some of the atheists that my listeners continue with are making fun of the Bible in such a way it's presented, maybe we shouldn't blame them too much for it because if because our churches don't present the Bible as an exciting book. Yeah, they, they, yeah, I mean, they have plenty of ammunition there. I, again, I speak this to my shame, but I remember, oh, it's 20 plus years ago now, but I remember being in a particular church and, and my wife would get so mad at me. But I would sit down and I'd look in the bulletin. It, it didn't matter what passage it was. I would write out where the sermon was going to end, what the points of it were going to be before he ever even started. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I was I was right, and it's like I, I, I just thought, look, I I know this is probably I'm developing a bad attitude here. I need to knock it off. <laughs> but I I what's going to happen here? You know, it, it I've just seen it too many times. I, it's not magic. I'm not psychic or anything. I just everything is going to be directed in the same direction because mm-hmm. that's it's either what he knows how to do. Or, and this I think is worse, the, the, assum- the operating assumption has become that the people in the pew cannot handle serious content. I disagree with that. Oh, yeah. I think, I think we routinely underestimate both the appetite and the aptitude for solid content in church. I, I just think that's criminal. Too much. I know when I've given an apologetics presentation to youth groups, for instance, and such, they usually eat it up, and they are going to ask a whole lot of questions. And I said, because chances are they've never been given that opportunity before to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You know, it, uh, and be careful if you, one of your answers isn't in the Westminster because <laughs> 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 then you'll, you know, then you thanked for it, or you know, you'll mm-hmm. you'll, you'll get a bad name or something. But you know, I, I just I think I put this in the book too, but I've said it a lot. I, I just reached the point, and a lot of it was that grad school experience of just realizing that a lot of Christians are never going to get to revival the way I was enjoying it. And I just felt bad about it. But I, I reached the point where I decided I was no longer going to protect people from their Bible. You know, it, it's just the Bible. You'll be okay. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the, the Bible's still going to be here. You'll be here. You know, I, I, it, it's, just, it's just your Bible. Just, you know, trust me, trust it. I will take you into it, and, and you're going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's not going to change, you know, it's not going to change the gospel or change, you know, your, what you think about Jesus and, and the Godhead and all that kind of stuff. It'll just, you'll just be able to see not only that stuff, but so many more things going on in the scriptures. And, and a lot of it specifically related to the supernatural world. You're going to be able to see that. You'll never be able to unsee it, but you're going to like it. If you're mm-hmm. patient with it, you're going to like it. You're going to enjoy it. Your Bible will come alive again. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I really do hope that someday the church does wake up to this kind of thing. Well, I did have someone ask earlier, they want to get my answer about yours. I mean, what do you think about Christians talking about, you know, supernatural attacks from enemy and such today? I mean, does that go on, or what should we think about it? It sounds, I'm open to it, but sometimes I think it's overblown. You know, as soon as I think something negative, well, that's Satan attacking me. Mm-hmm. No, maybe that's just you. Yeah, I, I I tend to it's overblown as well, and and here's 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 a good thing you know for your audience to consider and, and to look up in in the Bible. Occasionally, you get this talk about myriads upon myriads of of you know heavenly hosts, you know, and we and we get this conception that there's just zillions and zillions of of you know supernatural beings up there. That language is never attributed to supernatural beings in rebellion. There's a finite number of them. You know, we, you know, it's not a huge crowd. And so, you know, we think to take that multitudinous language and transfer it over to the, the hostile supernatural world and, and assume that every problem we have is some kind of demon. You know, there's a demon under every rock, behind every tree, you know, every room or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, having said that, I do think, you know, that that, that sort of thing can happen. Yeah. I distinguish, for instance, because I think, you know, Scripture does, uh, pretty clearly, you actually think theologically. Um, I distinguish between possession and oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, possession, if you're talking about can a Christian ever be owned, if you're talking about possession in terms of ownership, which an English word like possession sort of denotes ownership, okay, Christians cannot be owned. They cannot be taken away and, and owned by you know the forces of darkness. They can certainly be heavily influenced and oppressed and manipulated. Uh, that, that, that's very obvious you know, from certain passages in the New Testament. So we, we have to be open to the idea that there could be, uh, again, a, a sinister intelligence behind what's going on in a person's life. But by and large, I think we're, that they know, and we ought to admit, but I think the hostile forces of darkness know. And Scripture tells us, so we ought to, we ought to own it, that we can screw up our lives just fine. Mm-hmm. By ourselves, you know, we're 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 quite adept at doing that. Me, me, not you, temptation. Uh, I will find it myself. <laughs> you know, so I think I think that's not the first place. You know, we we should look when we have problems. You know, we we can we can usually trace something back to a, a poor decision we made, and and if we can't, it, it might be chastisement. It, it might just be God, you know, putting us in a set of circumstances to learn a, a hard lesson. You know, we don't all we don't have to conclude that it's a it's a, it's a demonic or you know, some other you know evil supernatural spirit uh, or or Satan. You know, Satan probably has has big fish to fry. You know, but but again, all that's on the table. You know, because of the New Testament, but we should not make the mistake that these beings are omniscient. They're not. There's no evidence that they can read your mind. There's there's no evidence that there's a huge multitude of them. I think they get a, a little too much street cred from Christians, and and we need to to recognize, you know, who's on our side, and then what we're looking at on the other side, and you know, realize that this really is a disproportionate battle, and it's not against us; it's for us. 
I can remember thinking about something I saw an image of my Facebook memories today where it said they're a meme of sorts that everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is that you are stupid in decisions. <laughs> yes, I've I've had some some of those. Pro- I say some because I I want to you know re- retain some dignity here, but I've had plenty of them. Let's put it yeah. that way. I think we all have. Dr. Heisler, we yeah. We got a call with unfortunately it's came during the end time, but this has been a fascinating interview. We've had a lot of interaction from the audience and such. Now, do you have a, a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, everything is sort of at their center. It's D R M S H D R as in doctor and then my initials. So D R M S H dot com. Um, I've I have blogs there. You can usually tell by the visual, you know, icon. If it's biblical stuff, that's Naked Bible. If it's strange stuff people believe about the ancient world, there'll be a Paleo Babel icon. If there's New Age, weird, you know, spiritualities, I call that UFO religions. Uh, but I, all three blogs, you know, live the same place at drmsh.com. You can find all my books there. You can find links to the podcast. If you want to go directly to the podcast, it's nakedbiblepodcast.com. Please subscribe. Mm-hmm. And I, I should mention Fringe Pop here. Fringe Pop 321 is a new channel that you know I would encourage people to subscribe to. It's basically me in a, in a cool studio trying to get people to think better about really strange stuff they believe about all sorts of things, you know. Parallel stuff, ancient world, like are there aliens in Egyptian tomb paintings, you know, that kind of stuff. Stuff you see in the History Channel. Uh, otherwise otherwise known as the so. Fantasy Channel, you know. It, um, but it's it's kind of a response show, you know, doing a, apologetics that way. And it has a corresponding website, fringepop321.com, and then there's fringepop321, the YouTube channel. So please check those things out. I bet you love that ancient alien show. Oh, Oh, yeah, it's just, it's must-see TV. <laughs> oh, my word. Talk yeah. about wanting to scream. <laughs> yeah. Do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Yeah, I, I would say don't don't fear your Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's been attacked for a very, very long time, and it's still here. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and part of the good Bible study is really about asking good questions, asking the right interpretive questions, and then knowing we can find resources to help you discover the answers. There's nothing new under the sun. No criticism you hear about Scripture is going to be new. There are good scholars who over the years have thought deeply mm-hmm. about that question, and they've come up with really good information, but a lot of it does not live on the Internet. So you need to know where to find that sort of thing. And again, my books try to do that direct you to resources and footnotes, my blog, so on and so forth, my podcast. So don't, don't fear. Don't, don't fear your, your, your Bible and don't fear, you know, the way people attack it. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Hazel, I'd like to thank you for taking your time to come on. And I really do hope to see you back here again sometime. It's been fascinating. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I can remind everyone that next week we're going to have Harvey Pivik on, possibly Dr. Douglas Black Guy, but definitely Harvey Pivik on, talking about the new apostolic reformation and super apostles. Should we be concerned? For now, I'm Nick Peters. And I affirm the virgin birth.